Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media, LLC, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. To Hildegard, the soul is... In every fluid and fiber, every part of our being, there's not just one like little locus somewhere that we name the soul. And soul to Hildegard is the dwelling place of God. And so in her way of thinking of it, the entire being, one's entire being is the dwelling place of God. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Susan Garthwaite. She's a spiritual director, spiritual writer, prayer group leader, and retreat facilitator in the Chicago area. For many years, she was a medical physiologist and project team leader working on new medicines for cardiovascular disease. Besides her numerous scientific papers, she's published on spiritual direction in publications like Presence and on spirituality, especially the wisdom of women mystics in spiritual life. She currently resides in Evanston, Illinois, and today we're talking about her recent book, St. Hildegard, Ancient Insights for Modern Seekers. Susan Garthwaite, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you, David. I'm really happy to be here. Well, I want to get into asking about the subject of your book, St. Hildegard, but on the way to that, I, I want listeners to get a sense of your own journey to this point and to writing about St. Hildegard. So I'm wondering if you could tell us just briefly about the journey that you've taken from your work in the medical field to your work in spiritual practices. Yes. Well, to be honest, I found working in science to be quite a spiritual adventure, too. I was a a team leader, and we were working in pharmaceutical on cardiovascular drugs, and those take a very long time, and most of the cardiovascular trials involve mortality studies, and it's very hard on the team while they wait for those results and wonder about the patients and so on. So 
I had a pretty active prayer life about my role in that. And also at one point, we decided that we needed a patron saint. Most of my team was Catholic, as it turned out. And you discover that when you travel because you see each other at mass nearby the hotel, right? So we decided we wanted a patron saint and we chose St. Hildegard because in her day, you treated heart failure with foxglove, which became digitalis, right? So she seemed perfect for us. But I didn't know a whole lot about her and I had never read her books. So I began reading and trying to find more out about her. And meanwhile, I was pursuing my interests in other women mystics and especially the women doctors of the church. So at some point, I became a spiritual director and started working with other people on their spiritual journeys. Got a chance to retire early from pharmaceutical after one more merger. And so I began to focus most exclusively on spirituality, doing spiritual direction and spiritual writing. So I continued my pursuit of the women doctors. And then sure enough, St. Hildegard became the fourth woman to be named a doctor of the church. And so my need to find out more about her increased. And then I was invited to do a weekend program on her by the Siena Retreat Center in Racine. So that really put the pressure on to find out more about her. So I read all of her books, not easy going. I read a lot of books about her developed the slide sets and so on, and off I went talking about her. But the main thing that happens that put me on the path of writing a book is, number one, the existing books didn't really deal with her spiritual messages or her spirituality. So that was a field that still needed some work. The second thing was the retreat center asked me, well, what book would you should we get on hand to offer the people who are coming for the retreats? And it was difficult to find anything that was really accessible. The books that had been written were written by academics and they focused on historic things and on her theology. So there wasn't anything really for the person in the pew. So if I heard you correctly, you were working in the sciences, you were working in pharmaceutical research. And one of the things that you said that you did in that was you were you and your team were confronting a good deal of death. I think that the phrase that you yes. used was mortality studies. Yes. And so the first thing that I want to ask is, as you and your team were looking at this these deaths that you had to keep track of in these pharmaceutical trials or as a not as a result of the trials, but just as a result of people being sick and some medicines working and some not is what I would imagine. You mentioned that most of your team was Catholic. Were you naturally drawn to reflecting on the spirituality of that moment? Was that sort of a natural step or how did those conversations evolve from we know that people in our cohorts are dying to asking questions about the greater meaning behind life and death? Ooh, yes. What happens during the course of a very long trial is that the team remains, the whole company remains blinded to who's on what, right? You don't know who's getting placebo and you don't know who's getting drug, but you do know who's ended up in the hospital and who's died, or, or at least the numbers. So... The clinical team member updates the team regularly on how many deaths you have, and it's not distributed according to placebo or drug. It's just there as a fact. 
And so what happens is doubt creeps in, right? You think you've done everything. You think you've got a good medicine, but you just don't know. That's why you do the trial, right? So I found that the team would get pretty down. And in my own struggles with looking at this data all the time, I began to pray about it. And so I finally decided, well, maybe somebody else would like to do that too. So it's tricky, but I kind of put the message out in non-company media (laughs) that we could maybe have a prayer session for the patients. And the turnout was amazing. And we played Hildegard's music and we prayed and I had an international team. They prayed in lots of different languages and everything. And so it helped us. And we were able to pray for the patients, which was really helpful. So we actually did that a couple of times. And by the second time, some of the patients had written to us and thanked us for the opportunity to be in the trial, to be so closely monitored. Some of them reported that they felt better and so on. So, so that really made them, we read those letters in the prayer meeting, a prayer session. And it brought those patients very much into our presence. They were so real to us. But at the same time, we felt hopeful about their path. So that's how those two things came together. It was an amazing experience, and it doesn't really fit anyone's stereotype of what pharmaceutical R&D is like, right? (laughs) But that's the path. Well, let me take a moment and reintroduce you here. So if you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Susan Garthwaite, and she's a spiritual director, a spiritual writer, a prayer group leader, and a retreat facilitator in the Chicago area. But for many years, she also worked as a medical physiologist and project team leader working on new medicines for cardiovascular disease. Today, we're talking about her recent book, St. Hildegard, Ancient Insights for Modern Seekers. I, I just want to linger on this for one more moment because you were describing just a moment ago the the process of inviting your colleagues to prayer meetings in your work in the pharmaceutical industry. But you made the point of saying you did that outside of official channels. And so I'm wondering about what it was like to be a spiritual presence in a corporate environment when I think most of my listeners would think of corporate environments as being maybe neutral or maybe even allergic to that kind of presence or that kind of activity happening in their midst. So did you do this covertly or what was the relationship like without going into too much detail between you and the corporations that were overseeing the research when you were doing these prayer activities. Right. We didn't do it on site, that's for sure. We went to an old church that was in the neighborhood of our laboratories, and most of the communication was really word of mouth. And I was surprised at how much people really wanted to do that and really responded. I actually, despite the stereotypes, never met an atheist in my scientific work. And maybe that's because we're in the upper Midwest and Chicago's a very Catholic city. Maybe that was it. I don't know. But I also found in my work with my Japanese colleagues that they were very spiritual. And we often visited shrines and temples when we were in Japan. And when they came to the United States, they participated in one of these prayer times too, praying their prayers in Japanese. So it was pretty fun and interesting. And mostly probably upper management, the executives of the company probably had no idea we were 
doing these kinds of things. I don't really know. But the team is together for years and years. For the project we were working on at the time, we were together for 11 years. And although there was some turnover, there was a pretty close core group of people that worked together all the time. And we gradually knew a lot about each other and felt safe to suggest something like this and participate together. So in listening to your answer, you said that in your scientific work, it was a curious phrase. You said that you never met an atheist and you were talking about the spiritual lives of your colleagues. And that leads me to sort of ask a question as we're moving towards our first break. So sometimes you'll hear people say phrases like, I'm spiritual, but I'm not religious. And so I'm going to venture something and you tell me what you think of what I'm about to say. So in in describing your colleagues, what I heard you say is that they may not be religious. In other words, they may not be part of a denomination or they may not, your colleagues in science may not have a liturgical practice. But what I heard you saying was that at the end of the day, you encountered them as being spiritual, as having some sense of these deeper metaphysical questions, some sense of a beyond, beyond the material uh, of what they could see and what they could measure. Now, those are my words, not yours. So I'm wondering, what have I got right and what have I got wrong? And how would you say it differently? I think that's pretty on target, David. Certainly, some of them did have faith traditions and were religious in the sense that they participated in their faith traditions, but others did not or rarely did. But what would happen is that we, with this medicine that we were working on, we got surprised regularly by the data where it was way better than what we expected. And then we would reach a point where we were worrying again and (laughs) more data would come in and it would be better than expected, right? So we that those things are really kind of out of your hands, right? And when we reached the very end and the medicine was approved for use for the long term in heart failure patients, we had a big celebration and it was a fairly uniform comment from team members that they felt helped by something bigger than us. That there was yes, we worked extremely hard. Yes, we were extremely careful. Yes, we had great study designs and good consultants. And we had a lot of things going for us, but it was way better than expected. And whenever we hit tough times, we still made it through and felt somehow helped by something bigger than us. So that's where I'm coming from is that this was a common sense of things that we were helped. That's so beautiful, the way that you just phrased that, the something beyond that was helping. And that is going to speak to exactly the kind of conversation that we're going to be getting into as our program continues. But for now, we're going to take a short break. Let me reintroduce you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. And if you're just joining us, uh, we're speaking today with Susan Garthwaite. She's a spiritual director, spiritual writer, prayer group leader, and retreat facilitator based in the Chicago area. But for many years, she was also a medical physiologist and project team leader working on new medicines for cardiovascular disease. She's written scientific papers, but she's also published on spiritual matters in journals like Presence and Spiritual Life. Today, we're talking about her recent book, St. Hildegard, Ancient Insights for Modern Seekers. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. 
Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Susan Garthwaite. She's a spiritual director, spiritual writer, prayer group leader, and retreat facilitator in the Chicago area. But for many years before that, she was a medical physiologist and project team leader working on new medicines for cardiovascular disease. Besides her numerous scientific papers, she's also published in a number of spirituality journals, including Presence and Spiritual Life. Today, we're talking about her recent book, and it's a fantastic book, St. Hildegard, Ancient Insights for Modern Seekers. Well, in our first segment, you were talking a little bit about your own journey from science to spirituality and how it wasn't like a light switch flipping, but rather the spirituality was being blended in even as you were doing this scientific research. And it, it helped you and your team to deal with some of the things that are always present in medical trials, death and we might even say unexplained death, because as you mentioned, you didn't have the data about why the people were dying. You just knew that certain numbers were coming in. And then you began to have correspondence from the people that were living, thanking you for your work in this area. All of this led to prayer meetings and other sorts of things with you and your team. And we began to talk about how even if some of your colleagues weren't necessarily religious, there was a spirituality that was undergirding all of this work that you were doing. That leads to a couple of other questions that I want to ask before we get to the subject matter of your book, St. Hildegard. You mentioned in the first segment that you had begun working as a spiritual director, and I'm wondering if you could inform my listeners what that term means when you use it. Right. I discovered in my work that people would come to me to talk to me about spiritual matters, and I mentioned it at some point to my own spiritual director and he invited me to really think about that and why that was happening and at some point suggested I should pray about becoming a spiritual director which was a new thought to me in the spiritual direction slash spiritual companioning field there is debate about what term is really the best I'm a member of spiritual directors international and I went through a program that was called spiritual direction certification. So their concept is that we say direction because the reality is there's often an unequal situation between the spiritual director and the directee. The director isn't actually sharing their spiritual journey in a way that an equal companion would be. The director is mainly supporting the journey of the other person. So the way I like to think about it is, ideally, even for me, I would like my spiritual director to be somebody who maybe crossed the stream before already and could point out a few of the stepping stones to me so I'm helped. It's not like there's some 
great superior expert necessarily or anything like that, but they've been places, they know things, they've had experiences that they can help me with so that I can get across that stream myself with some degree of ease. So when we're together in spiritual direction, some people come just because they, you know, in their words, they say, I just need somebody to talk to about God. I've heard that a surprising number of times that that's it. They don't find it easy to talk sometimes even to their spouse about their experiences with God, or sometimes they're confronting an important decision or a dilemma, and they really very generously would like to know how God is leading in the situation. But a lot of the time, we're simply working together to see if we can figure out how God is present and acting in their ordinary lives. So most of the time, what I'm doing is listening intently to the directee, but at the same time to the Holy Spirit, which takes a while to get so you can do both things at the same time. I'm trying to be the spiritual director that both God and the other person can utilize in the moment, right? So in the book, I give some examples of my own experiences of being greatly helped by a spiritual director where I felt I was not on track and I needed some help and I got it. I got really good help from directors. But I also provide some examples from my experiences of doing direction with the permission of the people involved. So the book is hopefully going to be a help to everybody, also to those either learning to be spiritual directors or who are already spiritual directors. So every topic in the book, whether we're talking about discernment or prayer or mysticism or whatever, has an example in there of spiritual direction where someone is being helped to discern or pray or understand the more unusual experiences of God, that sort of thing. So it turns out that people need some focus and help sometimes to identify and to name the graces in their lives. St. Ignatius says that when we're in some difficulties, like we've been not tuned into God for a while, that we become a little bit unseeing and unhearing, right? And sometimes what the spiritual director is doing is breaking through that and helping people to see and hear again. And when they find those wonderful graces in their lives and they begin to name them, they really lighten up and sparkle a bit and they start to find spiritual direction to be fun and energizing. But I would also say, especially in working with younger people, that human beings simply need to be affirmed. And they need sometimes to be reminded of God's love for them. And when we do that, again, they feel lifted up and there's a real good chance that they'll be able they'll be better able to do those kinds of things for somebody else. They might go home and feel more capable of affirming their child or something. What I love about that answer is you've already framed out for us that even though the word director is there in spiritual director, it's not an authoritarian relationship. You're a companion. I love the image that you gave of someone who's walked across the stream before and knows where the stepping stones are. I think that's beautiful. But that also makes me think about a phrase that comes up again and again in your book, St. Hildegard, that was used by St. Hildegard. It's this notion of friendship. 
this notion that you can be a spiritual friend to another and that God can be a friend or you can be a friend of God in this. And so I'd like to invite you to begin to introduce St. Hildegard into this conversation as you're describing your role as a spiritual director, a spiritual companion. What is the role of friendship in a spiritual relationship like that? St. Hildegard pretty much defined two major sections of, of the book for me, befriending your soul and becoming a friend of God. And one thing leads to the other. So how do we befriend our soul? To, to Hildegard, the soul is in every fluid and fiber, every part of our being. There's not just one like little locus somewhere that we name the soul. And soul to Hildegard is the dwelling place of God. And so in her way of thinking of it, the entire being, one's entire being is the dwelling place of God. And so in befriending our soul, it seems inevitable to her and to me also, that what happens eventually is that we become a friend of God. Where's everything going? Well, it's going into deeper relationship with God and where we share a lot of God's ideas and God's desires as our own, right? So that's what friends do. Friends stick together and try to make the same things happen that each other is interested in. And in the end, as Ignatius says, our destiny is to live with God forever. So we start now living with God, and God is very invested in that. That's St. Hildegard's idea that, that God is really hard at work trying to bring us to that deeper friendship and that relationship that we'll have forever with God. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and we're speaking today with Susan Garthwaite. She's a spiritual director, spiritual writer, prayer group leader, and retreat facilitator in the Chicago area. And prior to that work, for many years, she was a medical physiologist and project team leader working on new medicines for cardiovascular disease. So she's published in both scientific realms and also in spiritual journals. But today we're talking about her recent book, St. Hildegard, Ancient Insights for Modern Seekers. You just said something that I think is going to really be important for some of my listeners. You use this phrase, friends stick together, and that God is trying to find ways to deepen that friendship. I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but I think this may be surprising to some listeners who maybe have a model of God as the judge or the stern rule giver. This is a very different approach to a relationship with divinity. Is that a fair thing to say? That's definitely a fair thing to say. We get a lot of our images of God from various places, right? I don't think we, as children even, that we really have any idea other than what somebody else has told us about God. And then eventually, we, through our own experience and through exposure to other ideas and so forth, we have the chance to begin to see God a little differently, maybe even to name God differently than we traditionally have. St. Hildegard, for example, has a fair amount of feminine imagery of God in her writing and certainly in her music. She refers to God as Sophia or wisdom. And I like that a lot. And that kind of shakes up some of the white bearded male imagery to be talking about Sophia of the whirling wings, as St. Hildegard puts it. And as somebody who is trying to draw us into friendship and just appreciates us so much. 
one of my favorite things that Hildegard says about God is that God will demand that we be raised up. You know, that because God created us, God continues to care for us as God's friend and wouldn't be able to bear it if we weren't ultimately raised up. And I just love that imagery that it's not like a big debate. It's not, boy, I've got to earn an awful lot of points. It's more that this is exactly what God wants and God's working for. And we'll insist that we be raised up. I think that we are perhaps losing some of our Calvinist audience at this particular moment, but that's okay. (laughs) So I want to stick with this because some of the things that you just said, as I suggested, may be surprising or even shocking to some of my listeners who come from certain branches of Christian faith traditions. This notion that God will demand that we will be raised up, this notion that God is wanting friendship and deepened relationship with us. And you began to mention that Hildegard was also very attuned to the feminine imagery that is available both in the theological tradition, but also if you read the whole of the Bible, it's there in the text of the Bible. Now, some listeners may say, well, this is fringe, this is coming from the outside, but I want to draw in something that you mentioned also in the first segment, that St. Hildegard is one of the four female doctors of the church. And I think for some listeners, it's going to be helpful at this moment to help them understand what it means to say that she's a doctor of the church. Okay, yes. Great question. A doctor of the church, and really, we're still under 40 with the numbers of them, so they're rare. And they tend to be people, saintly people, of eminent doctrine. Probably St. Therese is a good example of one who didn't leave behind very much doctrine, a small amount of writing, but at the same time has had a tremendous impact on people. Almost everybody who knows about Therese the Little Flower knows about the little way and that small things can count quite a lot on our journey. So her impact has been tremendous. And as such, she was named a doctor of the church for that very reason. St. Hildegard had a very interesting path becoming a saint and becoming a doctor of the church because in her time, we had more than one pope and a lot of corruption in the church and everything. And all people thought she was saintly before she died. And they venerated her as a saint after she died. Her cause for sainthood just kept getting messed up in church corruption and neglect and things like that. So when Benedict XVI became pope coming out of Germany, which was Hildegard's stomping ground, he was very interested in making her a doctor of the church. And the nuns at the St. Hildegard Abbey in in, uh, Germany said, excuse me, your holiness, she hasn't actually been officially made a saint. So Hildegard was officially made a saint. And then about two or three months later was named a doctor of the church. And that doctor of the church idea is that you can take their writings, you can take their example, their witness, and hold it up for the people as very reliable. So although Hildegard has these things like feminine imagery and things like that, she is actually quite orthodox. She doesn't go out of bounds from what the Roman Catholic Church believes. In fact, she was a great defender of the church. She fought hard against heresies. She particularly fought against the heresy that Jesus wasn't in God incarnate. And 
extended that understanding to what each of us is like, that we are incarnations as well. So this was huge for the defense against that heresy. And so her doctrine still holds up pretty well today. And I've read it over and over again many times. And her interpretation of scripture is fabulous. So there's a lot to be gained in looking at what she has to tell us about faith and about God. What I love about that answer is for those that are coming to this show, listening from the Catholic tradition, they are going to hear some markers in what you just said about the centrality of St. Hildegard's thought. But for listeners that are unfamiliar with some of the markers of Catholic, I'm going to use little o orthodoxy here, the fact that Pope Benedict XVI was the one championing the cause of St. Hildegard for sainthood and, and canonization, that alone should tell listeners about the fact that this is not fringe doctrine, that, that the references to anti-patriarchal, anti-masculine language are not coming from some wild third of the church but rather, as you said, are being recognized by those that themselves are recognized as being very central and doctrinal in that sense, and traditional, if I may use that word. So all of that is wonderful for orienting listeners to who St. Hildegard is. But there's another aspect of this that I want to come back to. You contrasted St. Hildegard with St. Therese of the Little Flower, and you said St. Therese wrote very little and yet became a doctor of the of the church. But tell us a little bit about the writings of St. Hildegard, because this was one of the fascinating things that I learned from your book. Her writings are actually very well cataloged. And in fact, there's, if I can say, there's an authorized edition of St. Hildegard's writings that she was deeply involved in creating. Could you tell us a little bit about that? That's correct. There is a big codex called the Ryzen Codex or the Giant Codex that resides in the Wiesbaden State Library in Germany. And there are some other versions that scholars appreciate pretty much as being authentic as well. But before she died, she was the one that was getting this organized and helping make decisions about what needed to be in there and what didn't. So the Ryzen Codex has all of her books that contain spirituality and theology material. So the Book of Divine Works, Sibius, the Book of Divine Merits, all the letters, both from her and to her, and her music, and then a few other commentaries and things like that, copies of some of her homilies, for example. So those all went in. If you if you go to the Wiesbaden State Library website, you can find her Ryzen Codex. It's actually digitized. You can click on it. You can click through all the pages. And you, unless you really know an archaic version of Latin, you won't understand it. But at least you can look at it and you can go through and you can see the evidence of at least six different scribes working to put it all together. And so that gives us a good sense of what she felt belonged in there. And I would say, too, that there's Hildegard the reality and Hildegard the myth. A lot is, like all women doctors, it seems, sometimes they get hijacked to support various causes and things like that. Sometimes it's accurate, sometimes it isn't. There's a lot of enthusiasm about out there about healing and herbs and recipes and things like that. And all I can say is those do not appear in the codex that she herself helped put together. 
What we know now is that when an abbey was started, and she founded two of them. So she came from a double abbey, a male and female abbey, and took the nuns to a new abbey, subsequently founded another one across the Rhine, so she had two. But in those days, abbeys were hospitals. That's where people went who were desperately sick. And the people in the monastery, the nuns in her case, helped take care of those people. So they had to have something that they went by in order to help people. So it seems that scholars are reaching a point now where they think that what Hildegard did is got copies of what the monks had at their monastery. They used it at hers. And she put some comments of her own in there, but didn't write them from scratch. And so she didn't claim them as such. But they're around and people pick them up and they run with it and think that's what they need to know about Hildegard. And it's not quite it. (laughs) If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Susan Garthwaite. She's a spiritual director, spiritual writer, prayer group leader, and retreat facilitator based in the Chicago area. Today, we're talking about her recent book, St. Hildegard, Ancient Insights for Modern Seekers. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Each week on our program, we bring you a rich conversation about culture and faith. If you're enjoying these conversations, please go to our website, thingsnotseenradio.com. There you'll find close to 10 years of these sorts of interviews and conversations, all available for free for your listening pleasure. Our guest today is Susan Garthwaite. She's a spiritual director, spiritual writer, prayer group leader, and retreat facilitator based in the Chicago area. For many years, she was a medical physiologist and project team leader working on new medicines for cardiovascular disease. So she's published both in scientific journals and also in spiritual journals such as Presence and Spiritual Life. Today we're talking about her recent book, St. Hildegard, Ancient Insights for Modern Seekers. Well, I want to turn now to the structure of the book itself, your book on St. Hildegard, because something that you have mentioned several times in the conversation was that when readers pick this book up, you wanted them to have a very practical access to St. Hildegard. You wanted those that were interested in spiritual direction to be able to apply this both to their own spiritual seeking, but also if they were guides or companions for others, to be able to apply very easily some of the insights in the book. So I wonder if you could talk to my listeners about how you chose to structure the book from this practical standpoint. Right. The first assumption for the spiritual journey is that you're really talking about seekers. Something happens in people's lives that results in their becoming a seeker, right? I give some examples first of how that might happen, that you name and experience a God experience. Almost everybody that I see in spiritual direction can point to a time or a moment when they had a sense that, boy, they were dealing with God. Like Thomas Merton's God moment on the street corner in Louisville, those kinds of moments are actually pretty common in people who have reasonably active prayer lives, and their experiences like that matter quite a bit in how their lives unfold. So that's the first part, is what happens that we ended up becoming a seeker? What experiences did we have that made us say, wow, maybe this God thing is actually for real, right? So then The next two big umbrellas are becoming the faithful friend of your soul and becoming the faithful friend of God. And those two 
pieces of structure, I borrowed 100% from Hildegard herself. So I talk about her invitation, first of all, to befriend our soul. And then I talk about some processes that may be helpful to us that most of the people that I see in direction end up using. They might be somebody who reads some scripture every day. They might be somebody who journals. They have various ways that they pray. And then there's also discernment, which can involve a lot of different levels. But the idea being, how is God leading me in a particular situation? And then in the part about becoming the faithful friend of God, the shift really is toward God taking over a little bit more in one's spiritual life, where God's activity becomes a little more obvious. And maybe what we're doing in our spiritual life isn't quite as much in our control as it used to be. And we're really deeply following what God is up to. And many things are happening that are signs of God's presence and action in our life. And we're in spiritual direction. What we're trying to do is say, wow, well, this happened. What should we make of that? It's different than saying, well, this is what I wrote in my journal. I did this wonderful poem about my life with God and whatever, where we're very much the agent, right? And it's shifted to God is very much the agent, and I'm trying to keep up. One of the things that strikes me about that answer, and I'm going to talk for a moment about my own family because my daughter is 11, and one of the things that my wife and I have observed in my daughter's play with others, including her brother, is that oftentimes she will enter into a situation where she's playing with someone and she will have a script in her head and her intention is to make all the other participants follow the roles that she has in her head. And part of being a parent is helping her to let go of that kind of directiveness and instead to be open to the surprise and the genius of other people. What really rang out for me in your answer about how you chose to structure this book and why you wanted to make it so practical is that if we're talking about friendship with God, if we really mean friendship, to be friends to our own soul and friends to our own and, and friends to God, we have to in some way be open to surprise and to the idea that we are not necessarily directing others and that there is something in the relationship with God. Now, I'm going to be careful about how I say this, that might be open or surprising to both sides of that relationship. Now, when I say it that way, am I following some of what Hildegard is talking about or is there a better way to say it? I love the word surprise that you've been using here because I think it's a hallmark oftentimes is that God is so beyond us and at the same time trying to join up with us in a way that we can understand. But the element of surprise comes in a lot because we think differently, whole different thoughts come to us, whole different understandings come to us that we might find completely surprising. And I love that because to me that says, I didn't think my way to this, it came. It was bigger than anything I'd gotten to by myself. And that's Hildegard too. She talks about those experiences where she has a vision or a locution or something like that. And she gets to a whole new thing. She claims, and I think this is true because she didn't have any formal schooling, that her prayer life, her mystical life in particular, 
opened up scripture for her completely. She began to understand it in a way she never understood it before because of what happened between her and God and how she just understood things completely differently. One of the examples she gives is Moses with the burning bush. And she finally says, we should understand that to be the Holy Spirit. And she uses that fire imagery a lot. She appreciates that what happened to Moses on that spot is sometimes a descriptor of what happened to her sometimes, that she just got a whole new experience of God and sent her in completely new directions that she never anticipated going. Well, and, and so thinking about that image of Moses, that again leads into kind of what we're talking about in terms of spiritual direction. And the, the idea of there is a place that we're going, but we're going there together. And a lot of the story of Moses was not direct routes, but wandering, take 40 years to get from one place to another. And so talk to my listeners about what they can expect when they come to your book. One, one of the things that, that you have said in some of the promotional literature for this book is that you hope that readers will encounter their lives as having before your book and after this book on St. Hildegard. So help us to understand what kind of impact you're hoping that readers will come to have as a result of engaging with the kind of practical spiritual wisdom that Hildegard is offering us in the way that you've, you've presented it in the book. Well, first of all, I should say that I think a lot of spiritual experiences, even tiny ones, have a before and after to them. If they're a genuine spiritual experience, we're not the same person after that experience. We have a different understanding. We might be going a different direction. We might have a new thought about God and so on. So I'm hoping that somewhere along the way in the book, whether it's a response to a reflection question or it's an aha moment, a deeper understanding of something, a new image of something, that there will be a before and after. It could be a little one. It doesn't matter. But somewhere in the book, I hope something like that happens. I trust that because working with Hildegard, I've had quite a few of those where she said something that just changed everything for me. I, I would say an example is she's talking about prayer and she says that the human being is a house of prayer, right? Imagine that. You're a house of prayer. And I love that image because it encourages us to seek God in our own depths, right? And that's something all four women doctors emphasize. I find in doing spiritual direction that, oddly, that is not a place a lot of people have looked, <laughs> is in their own depths for God's presence. So there could be moments like that where some image that she presents, and she is far better at presenting imagery than I am. So I love it that she provides quite a bit. Something will happen, and there'll be a before and after for the person. If you're just joining us, this is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Susan Garthwaite. She's a spiritual director, spiritual writer, prayer group leader, and retreat facilitator based in the Chicago area. Today, we're talking about her recent book, St. Hildegard, Ancient Insights for Modern Seekers. Well, what I really like about what you've just said is this notion that somehow a person is going to be on a journey of discovery. That, that in the process of encountering your book and encountering the writings of Hildegard, and 
you mention at the end of the book that probably a good third of this book, so I'd say probably a hundred of the 300 pages, is direct quotation of St. Hildegard. But as they're encountering this, what I heard in your answer was that there's a desire to have the reader, the seeker, the spiritual companion begin to trust more and more themselves and the, their own spiritual genius. Now, when I say that, that's my phrasing, so you might have a different way to say that. But I'm aware of the fact that there are some spiritual traditions that are going to find this very threatening. There are some spiritual traditions, even within Catholicism, perhaps, that we could think about that would say getting people to trust themselves is not the goal. We should instead be getting people to trust the institution or to trust the texts. What does St. Hildegard say to those who would want to cling to that larger institution or to the one reading of the holy text? How does she invite us out of that and, in fact, encourage us to begin to trust ourselves? I think she discovered for herself that Scripture really is, as we teach, the living Word, that if you spend time with it and you meditate on it, you really pray hard with it, things happen, right? It's the living Word. Something will occur. So if you read it like, you know, a physics book or something like that, and you're not open to anything happening, you're really denying that it's the living Word of God. So. As I said before, she's pretty orthodox, and yet some of what she says that leads to her becoming a doctor of the church comes straight out of her mystical experience, and that is truly unusual territory for a lot of people. I understand that, but you can't really stop God from what God does. So looking for God everywhere, she says, look in creation. The creator has, it can be seen in the creation. Look into your own depths, look into scripture, look into uh, prayer, look into the guidance of others, look into the writings of the saints. It's there. So it's nothing to be afraid of. In fact, my experience with God is that great love of God takes away a lot of the fear. Fear can't survive very well in the presence of absolute love. And so if we trust in God's love and mercy, as St. Therese advises us, we don't have to be afraid. There's so much beauty in what you just said, but one word that really jumped out to me was your word mysticism. And you just mentioned that. You also talk in your book, St. Hildegard, about various moments that you have had in your own life and journey that could be called mystical encounters or mystical openings. But I wonder, particularly as someone who comes out of a scientific background, for listeners that may be wary of that phrase or may think that we're talking about just spooky hocus pocus, when you're using that word mysticism, how do you think about it as a person who not only has spiritual training, but also empirical training? I found experience kind of direct experiences of God initially for me to be pretty startling and, and in a way inconsistent with how I thought the universe operated as a scientist, right? So I had a lot to learn. And I would say this, that people write about mysticism in a lot of different ways, you know, but look in scriptures loaded with mystical experiences. We already mentioned Moses with the burning bush and what exactly happened on the mountaintop when he got the tablets, right? So there are different things that happen in scripture that you could say that's mystical experience. Certainly, all four women doctors of the church describe mystical experiences. So 
There are those who equate mysticism with union with God. That's it. There's no evidence in the writings of the person about union with God, then they're not a mystic. There are others of us, particularly the great theologian from Vatican II, Karl Rahner, who very much broaden the definition to include becoming directly aware of God and often beyond our usual ways. What Rahner does is say, oh, have you ever had a pang of conscience? What was that? Was it an experience of God? Well, maybe it was. And then way at the other end of the continuum, you have the flaming visionaries like Hildegard, right? And most of us are somewhere along that whole continuum, but we're directly aware of God somehow. And God becomes less hidden and more directly experienced. The way St. Hildegard puts it is, The miracles of God in the soul become part of our awareness. So mysticism tends to have that directness. It has surprise, often amazement, often incredible clarity, and kind of a call to be a little bit more on fire, right? Certainly, I've led book discussions, for example, with Therese and Teresa and so on with little groups in. There often are people in the group who, when you get to the part about mystical experience, they're pretty sure this is a person that should have had psychiatric treatment, right? But other people nod and they take these in, and often that's because of their own experiences of God. In fact, sometimes they're completely relieved to find out about the saints' experiences, or they'll come up to me after the meeting and they'll say, I want to tell you about something that happened to me. And they, and they give you some little story of what happened. And then they say, changed my life forever, right? So we know mysticism has a whole variety of experiences, visions, locutions, which is basically hearing with your spiritual ears, times of overwhelming tenderness. Ignatius talks about that. Consolation, he calls it, where sometimes it's just overwhelming. Sometimes it's surprising insights that change everything, like this huge thought, or like with Hildegard and some of the things I relate, the experience of experiences of light that are not like anything you've ever experienced before as far as light is concerned and so on. So what we know about them is that we can't produce them on our own or reproduce them ourselves, certainly not with the impact that they have. But I'd be the first to say, and I know Teresa Vavila would totally agree with me, these experiences don't flow from our holiness, right? It can be just the opposite. It could be like Teresa Vavila openly admits that she wasted decades not praying as she ought, even though she was a Carmelite nun. And it was mystical experience that finally, finally put Teresa on the path into a deeper relationship with God. And I would say that for me, too, that nothing mystical I've ever experienced could possibly have flowed from my holiness. On the other hand, might have put me on a bit better path. Well, Susan Garthwaite, I just want to say 
I had heard the name St. Hildegard a number of times in my own theological and religious training, but had never really been introduced to the thought or the writings. Your book, St. Hildegard, Ancient Insights for Modern Seekers, was such a good introduction for me. I know it's going to be a fantastic introduction for my listeners. It's a valuable and much-needed resource, and it adds to a conversation that I think the Church is desperate to have right now, particularly around feminine images of God, but also this idea that God God wants to be our friend and wants to be in relationship with us. Thank you so much for taking the time to write the book, but also thank you especially for taking time to talk with us about it today. Great. Thank you, David. It's been a real pleasure. Hildegard deserves the attention. I would say that's one thing that I've learned is that it's not just about this book either. It's about making her more known. It's a shame to have a fourth woman named a doctor of the church and nobody knows about her, right? So... Hope we can change that. We've been speaking today with Susan Garthwaite. She's a spiritual director, spiritual writer, prayer group leader, and retreat facilitator in the Chicago area. For many years, she was a medical physiologist and project team leader, so she's written both in the scientific realm but also in spiritual journals. Today, we've been talking about her recent book, St. Hildegard, Ancient Insights for Modern Seekers. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at the William Adams Studios in beautiful Hyde Park here on the south side of Chicago, Illinois. Our studios have a home courtesy of the Zygon Center for Religion and Science, part of the Lutheran School of Theology at Chicago. Neither Zygon nor LSTC are responsible for the content of this program. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Our show is made possible in part by the generosity of supporters on Patreon. You can find out how to help us create great programs by going to patreon.com slash notseenradio. You can follow us on Twitter at notseenradio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about our guests. That's facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and find out more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.